1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Take Cast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis In this episode of the show, I felt very blessed to have Ben Ryder, the author of Astro Ball on the podcast. Uh, Astro Ball really made the rounds on, uh, you know, daily fantasy Twitter, football Twitter, baseball Twitter, analytics Twitter over the last sort of six months or so, so I was really excited to talk to Ben uh, about the book, about how some of the things that the Astros do are really innovative, about some of the things that they're doing with their scouts uh, and combining that with data, how these things might imply, uh, you know, might apply to football. So just a lot of really interesting topics that I think are perfectly aligned with what this show is about. We are of course presented by DailyRoto.com. You can get 10% off the best daily fantasy tools in the industry using the promo code Rory and RotoExperts.com, which I head up. The NFL 365 package you can get 10% off of that 39.99 package using the promo. code code MADDIC and you can always leave a rating and review on iTunes to support the show if you like the show and you want extra episodes bonus episodes uh, you can subscribe to the patreon for five dollars a month patreon.com slash take and now let's go ahead and get into the show All right, everyone, would like to welcome in Ben Ryder to the show. He is the author of the best-selling book, Astro Ball. I know a lot of you have read it. Ben, we actually have, uh, we had some requests for you to come on the show after I interviewed uh, one of the presidents of the minor league team in the Astros organization. So thank you, Mary. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing this morning?
0: Good. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So what in particular has drawn you to the story of the Astros? You famously predicted on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 2014 that they would win the World Series in 2017. Would you describe yourself as a, as a fan of the team now, and, and how do you sort of interact with the games now after the book?
0: Well, what drew me to the story was, I guess, a bit of rubbernecking to begin with. Like, this was such a disaster in 2014 they weren't just the worst team in baseball they were the worst baseball team over a three-year stretch which is a long time for half a century so i was kind of drawn by just how ludicrously bad they were at first and i had questions why are you so bad what's the plan here is there even a plan here that was that was what i first wanted to figure out um And it took about a year of conversations with Jeff Luna in the front office in which I said, look, I'm not going to say whether this is going to be a positive story, a negative story. I don't know. Uh, All I can say to you is I'm going to come in with an open mind. If we do the story, we're going to need some level of access that's pretty unprecedented as far as what a front office will allow itself to be shown doing or allow a writer into. um, And we'll see. And finally they said, okay, you can come down for a few days around the 2014 major league draft. You can sit in our meetings that we're going to have with our entire organization, our analysts, our scouts, like Nolan Ryan's going to be in there, Craig Vigio. You can see how we operate, uh, how we're going to make this third straight number one overall pick. Um, and we'll open up to you. So I said, look, that sounds like a good opportunity for a sports writer Uh, No matter what comes of it, after having spent those three days there, I obviously became convinced there was a lot more to the story than I ever thought. I became convinced they were on to a new model as far as how to build a winning team out of really nothing at all, because that's what they had when Jeff Luno got there. And I quite clearly believed that it was going to work, as when my story appeared in Sports Illustrated, it came beneath the cover that read your 2017 World Series champs, which to many people seemed a pretty ridiculous prediction at the time anyway.
1: I I have some pretty distinct memories of that 2014 Astros team because I was you know I was following baseball pretty closely then that was when uh, the team that I rooted for the Kansas City Royals was very good and I just remember uh, you know Matt Dominguez getting ran out there every day probably one of the worst hitters that Major League Baseball has ever seen and. Did you feel at the time that Lunau and his associates were pretty confident in what they were doing? Did, did you get a sense at the time that they they were pretty certain that their approach was going to work?
0: Extremely confident. Now, they've often been accused of being arrogant. I don't know about that. Maybe it's a semantics thing. But yes, you have to be confident to do what they did to be essentially an embarrassment for the sport, for the city, for your owner for a number of years in the belief that you know that the process you're undertaking is going to eventually work and you have to be confident to allow a guy like me come down from New York and sit in on your meetings and talk to everybody in your organization uh, as well. I think those teams were terrible in 2014, but if you're paying attention they were getting better. You know, this was not the 111 loss disaster of the year before where the end of the season was, I think, like a 17-game losing streak or something like that. There were some glimmers here. You know, George Springer came up. He was the guy who ended up on the Sports Illustrated cover. Uh, he was kind of providing some spark to the team. Jose Altuve had started to turn from what everybody thought he would be, including Jeff Luno, for that matter, you know, a nice little slap heading middle infielder, into something more. Carlos Correa, whom they surprised everybody by picking with the 1-1, the first overall pick two years before, had started to rocket up the minor leagues. Clearly, there were some signs, if you were really squinting and looking closely, that this thing had just started to maybe turn around, or at least was no longer at the bottom point uh, when I was there in the summer of 2014.
1: I think another really interesting things about the those early Astros teams was they were sort of playing that three true outcomes baseball. Not so much with the pitching, but with their hitters. A lot of those early guys that were in the developmental process uh, along the way for the Astros winning the World Series, they were strikeout, home run, walk, and I think that if we had the information we have now about strikeout rates, fly ball rates and all like all of that advanced information. And you looked at what those Astros teams were building. I think, I think t- more than anything, that was where Lunao and the Astros were, were sort of visionaries.
0: They were, I think they were. I mean, I think that's just, those were just the guys they could get at the time, or at least where those guys were on their devel- developmental curves. Of course, the big reason why the Astros did so well recently, particularly in 2017, was not only did they hit a ton of home runs, they actually don't strike out very much, right? Like two years ago when they won the World Series, they struck out less than any other team while somehow accomplishing the incredible feat of hitting more homers than anybody else except the Yankees. So I don't think that you know they want guys who strike out a lot. They certainly want guys who hit a lot of homers, but the ideal is still guys who hit homers and don't win very much.
1: Yeah, I mean that every team would make their lineup uh nine guys of like nine guys like that if they could. And but right. I, I do think I do think it is pretty interesting that even some of those bad hitters that they had on those teams were able to uh, to have a little bit of power like down in the order, which is always something that I've advocated for.
0: Right. Yeah. Another yeah, thing, if, if you have to choose, if you have to, like, yeah, I know you're talking you're talking about like the Chris Carter. Ex- yeah, Chris Carter. Had, I couldn't remember his, his name. they signed guys like that.
1: Yeah, and and I think that that's something that, like, especially, like, smart American League teams have sort of prioritized for a long time has been, look, if if you're going to have a guy who, who hits 210, at least have him be able to hit 20 home runs over the course of the season because that might swing a couple games here or there that, like, your average Chris Owings, he's not going to be able to do.
0: Yeah, you're right about that.
1: Uh, so another thing that you mentioned in the book is that now and a bunch of his assistants were super into fantasy sports, which is, uh, that's the background of this podcast and a lot of the guests that I have on, and your book is super popular amongst a segment uh, of Twitter users who are, like, really, really into fantasy football. Something about the Astros story has really spoke to the fantasy football mindset. Uh, do you think that the Astros organization and kind of their the way they speak about draft classes as portfolios is kind of the first time a fantasy sports team has played out in real life. That's really the sense that I got from the sort of the drafting part of the book.
0: I think I think that that's a fair assessment. And yeah, Jeff Luno, as we know, did not come up in baseball. Right, he was a business school uh, student, started playing fantasy baseball, winning his leagues every year, largely because uh, competitors of his say. He always knew who all the next top prospects were that were going to come up that he should make early claims on, right? And this was in the mid-90s, like before everybody knew about these guys. Uh, this is when you really had to be kind of a real geek to, like, know who these guys were. Luno always did. Of course, Sigma Dell, uh, who was their director of decision sciences, also had a fantasy sports background. Um, what I think their real strength is, is that they brought that mindset and said that there was more to it than just that, right? Like, yes, they did bring that fantasy portfolio mindset, but they also kind of looked deeper into the human factors at play here, the players that they were acquiring. They valued scouting opinions that they were getting. Uh, Maybe fantasy owners would do this if they had access to all this information. In fact, I probably think they they would. But, yes, they're, they're fantasy owners in some ways who got the chance to unleash the full power of a sophisticated organization on the problem of building a team.
1: And one of the things that always comes into building a team is trying to find a scientific way to value traits and skills. This is something that's like really prevalent in NFL draft coverage. Like people will talk about NFL draft prospects having uh, great foot frequency or fluid hips or whatever. And I've I've sort of always been skeptical of a, a system that would have the ability to rate that. And uh, in the book, you report that you know the Astros they have a system that rates scouts and says you know this scout is really good at judging the veracity of of fastballs or of of this trait or that trait. And I I still sort of think that it it seems mystical to me that traits and skills can be really accurately judged by humans without the use of computers or numbers. Uh, Do you think the organization would still disagree with that, though, that they would say, no, there definitely are people that are better at judging certain skills than other people could judge the same skills?
0: I think they would disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think that their whole thing was we're foolish to throw away this human expertise element, this soft information, just because we think the numbers describe situations better. You know, no model is perfect. No model will capture the reality of every situation. So you try to make it as, as sharp as it can and feed as many accurate inputs into it. You know, you're talking about football, Like Yeah, I mean, I've always had a problem, as a lot of people have, with the combine, right? Okay, so we're measuring these kind of weird, disparate skills, and we're seeming to put a lot of weight into them, or we're seeming to put equal weight into them. Like, how much a dude benches 225? Uh, matters as much as how fast he runs the 40, matters as much as how fast he does the cone drill, et cetera, et cetera. What the astros were really good at was systematically figuring out which of these skills actually matters and which of them don't. Or maybe both of them matter, but one matters a hell of a lot more than the other. So you weight that a lot more heavily in your algorithm. And as we think of the scouting ratings you were talking about, they were very good at figuring out which ones matter, which ones don't, Uh, Which scouts were very good at detecting one thing, particularly as far as the softer factors like growth mindset and character and stuff, which really do make a difference as far as the player's improvement curve and putting them all together essentially to create a full picture of not just the player, but the player's future. That's
1: that's what, like, a lot of the work that's being done in the analytics community in the NFL right now. Some people, you know, they, they would be more of the Astros mindset that, you know, the combine, a lot of it, a lot of it's noisy. It's hard to draw direct correlations. Other people are sort of of the mindset that, no, you need to weight these certain skills more. These other skills don't matter as much. Like, for example, the, the a bench press for a running back, like, there's not really a whole ton of reason to pay attention to that number, but the 40 time would pay a lot lot of attention do you have a sense of of what traits or skills the astros were trying to weigh super heavily in their algorithms
0: well it's very it's different for for all uh sorts of players but frankly a big one was this capacity to grow uh, capacity to improve to adapt, which is kind of more important in baseball than ever before because players have so much more technology at their disposal, so much more data at their disposal, that they're supposed to be able to process and execute upon. So it used to be that baseball teams would not look uh, for intelligence as a positive trait, right? You kind of wanted your baseball players to be a little bit dumb and kind of do things by rote. Uh, Books were not welcome in the clubhouse, for example, some years ago. But one of the things the Astros discovered was that, to them, high school grades, surprisingly, had a strong correlation to the ability to have a growth mindset, to the ability to adapt and grow and be gritty. So uh, they actually started uh, scouting for players with good grades, which is certainly not something you've heard in baseball before.
1: I mean, that seems to be a market inefficiency that they've that they've found, though, because when I think about baseball, I do think of it as uh, a thinking man's game. You, you need to be intelligent. Like, uh, every at-bat is sort of like a game of poker, you know, where you're thinking about, okay, what's the pitcher going to do? Like, it, it would not seem to me that dumb baseball players would be something that I would want on my team if I was trying to build a winning team.
0: <laughs> well, now... Now, but look, I mean, this is this is modern. Like it used to be a much more reactive sport, right? There used to be there used to not be the information. Like not everybody even watched video at all to pick up whatever they could anecdotally about a pitcher. Uh, that's certainly not the environment we're in anymore.
1: Uh, something you said that was interesting to me that I've always struggled with when it comes to baseball specifically is that we've always argued about the value of intangible players and uh, your book gives a lot of credit to Carlos Beltran in 2017 and he actually had a, a negative war that season uh, which I which I looked right. up when I was doing this agenda uh, because you know your book does give so much credit to him and and the Astros seem to swear by the idea that that season was integral to them winning the World Series but I've sort of always thought you know th- does a shortstop hating the second baseman stop them from turning a double player play and I I think your book would argue that that it does that that having someone who can tie the clubhouse together has value outside of what they do on the field
0: it does I believe so I believe team chemistry has an impact on uh, a team's overall performance at least the ability of a team to play like more than the sum of its parts now Davis you know the Kansas City Royals the they're, they're probably the poster
1: boy for this. Yeah, you you just try really hard and uh, and good things will come, yeah. Well,
0: they're the poster boys, and they're the team that kind of inspired Luno uh, to seek out somebody like Carlos Beltran because he saw that they had this intangible factor uh, when they beat them in the 2015 ALDS that the Astros were lacking. This veteran leadership, uh, this presence, like, yeah, it's very, very hard to quantify, you know. In retrospect, on one intellectual level, did the Astros overpay for Carlos Beltran when they gave a 40-year-old $16 million to produce, I don't know, like 16 or 17 home runs in a negative one war in 2017? Yes, I think that they did. But on another level, if you talk to the players in the clubhouse, all of the intangible ways that he helped each of them improve – down to the very real ways in which he helped them win the World Series by using his long-earned expertise to figure out that you Darvish was tipping his pitches, allowing the Astros to tee off on him in both of those vital games. Like, yeah, I think the Astros would probably make this signing again. I guess what I'll say is that one of their great strengths is that they aren't overly arrogant. Like, yes, they're confident, as we were talking about before, But they're sure of themselves enough to know that there are things that they don't know and that even they won't be able to measure, and that it might be a smart idea to allow some room for these factors, even if you don't exactly know how to quantify them. uh, That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So how much of that championship was Carlos Beltran responsible for? They don't know. I don't know. Certainly the Darvish thing when push came to shove was enormous. Uh, Certainly his tutoring was huge. But sometimes things are just a good idea, even in this analytical age, and even if you can't measure them.
1: And I think maybe that is where some of the analytics get things wrong. I I would definitely be more in the camp of, like, you you really have to prove something to me uh, in terms of, like, statistical evidence to get me to believe it. But a lot of the times when you do talk to, uh, you know, very high-ranking executive people, Lou now a lot of his assistants, they, they really do seem to hammer in that human element. And I guess... Uh, I mean, a big difference between what the Royals had and what the Astros have is is the Royals were not built to sustain that success at all. A, a big part of the Royals' success in uh, the 2014 and 2015 playoffs was built on the strength of that bullpen, and they, they never really figured out how to... Make that success repeatable, and I think I think what the Astros have is a repeatable model of success. But I mean, do you think that sort of every off season that they would go into uh, thinking about their roster construction in terms of chemistry is that something that you think that they are prior- prioritizing in free agency?
0: I don't think they're prioritizing it. <clears throat> I think the hope is that as we move along, the players in the clubhouse who are there will kind of mature will have integrated a lot of the stuff that someone like Beltran had brought into the clubhouse into their own daily process.
1: So obviously, uh, one of the big questions that anyone really into sports analytics is going to think about when reading the book is the black box. You know, what things are the Astros specifically weighing? What does the algorithm look like? How does it function? How much do you actually know about the black box that the Astros are using to make a lot of these personnel decisions?
0: Ah, the contents of the nerd cave. That's that's what you're after. That's exactly what I'm after. As I said, I believe that my access to the Astros was pretty unprecedented, at least probably since Moneyball and since 2014. I don't think anybody else has been allowed as deep inside. Certainly, there were some things that the Astros had to keep secret and continue to keep secret from me as far as every element that they're feeding into their algorithms, as far as the precise nature of their algorithms. But I would say I guess one way to think of it is um, just like really, really good Madden ratings almost, right? Like their process identifies those factors in a player's background and his skill set that matter. And then through backtesting and regression analysis uh, and hypothesizing, uh, they can project how current players are evaluating Will turn out based on the past performances of other players. They're continually perfecting their model. They're continually getting more and more sources of data to integrate, particularly in this track man uh, generation in which player tracking technology has opened up a whole new way of evaluating players. So, as far as like the exact weights of each of these signals, no, that's certainly firmly in the black box. But the overall concept of what they're doing is something about which we have a pretty good idea.
1: the The idea of like act like Madden ratings for players is is so fascinating to me because you know I'm of the generation that grew up playing video games. You know, I, I some of, like I just remember playing video games for almost as long as I have memories, and being able to like really accurately rate players is not something that's like ever really been possible. Do, do you think the Astros, well, do you know if they do that with their minor league players? Because I, I know that they have, you know, all that tracking data for all their minor league teams.
0: Oh yeah, they do it with everybody. I mean, Sig, Meidel, uh, and Luno kind of invented this thing even before they got to Houston back in St. Louis called stout scores. And they were applying it to draft picks at the time. It's called stout because it's half stats, half scout suggesting at the way they were integrating you know, the softer scatting information with the harder performance integration uh, information, I should say. But it essentially came out with like one number. And the unit of currency was runs, exactly, essentially. Like the number of runs a player could be expected to produce above average and compared with what you're likely to have to pay him. Uh, that's the overall concept, which essentially is a Madden rating. Although each individual factor that adds up to this Madden rating is not estimated, like each one is is high, is uh, analyzed in a very disciplined way and has a lot of research behind it. But really, that's the overall concept when you think about it.
1: Which is a pretty interesting concept. Do you have a sense of how many organizations are starting to implement this stuff you know, after seeing the Astros' success? or is it, is it a big copycat league or a lot of teams wanting to stick to the way they've always done things?
0: No, every team now is essentially trying to do something of what the Astros are doing. And look, a lot of teams have been pretty sophisticated analytically uh, for a long time, even stretching back to Moneyball, when there are a handful of teams thinking in the same way, you know, the Indians being one of them uh, in particular, along with the A's. But now, I think now with Mike and Sig, this is the first year in baseball history when we can say that all 30 teams in the league have firmly joined the analytical revolution. Now, just because all the teams have all these tools doesn't mean they're using them correctly. Like that's, that's the bigger I, I would argue the there's challenge.
1: evidence that teams are using it incorrectly, probably.
0: Right. You can't just say, like, well, we have a database. We have high-speed cameras. Like, we're on the Astros level now. No, that couldn't be farther from the truth. But we're no longer in an era in which there are still some holdout teams who think that not adopting these modern technologies is the way to go. So
1: where all of this sort of leads me in terms of the game of baseball is... I think there's probably some threat that the game of baseball gets solved, right? Because every team is sort of looking for similar skill sets. And the the three true outcomes, uh, strikeouts, walks, and home runs, they're all at historic rates right now. Uh, this is like the most home runs there's ever been through two weeks, the most strikeouts, the most walks there's ever been. Do you think that... Um, at at some point, there will be uh, a revolution against this, where where teams start wanting to play baseball in a different way. Or do you think that there is a threat that the approach to playing modern baseball does get solved?
0: I don't think that there's much of a threat that it'll get solved. I think it might turn into an uh, ever less entertaining product, which the league will probably have to legislate against, right, to try to get make the game more exciting and possibly, but no, I mean, baseball has always been cyclical. I think if all, you know, if most of the league is trying to do the same thing, then there might be an advantage in doing things differently as there usually is uh, going forward. I mean, we saw the Royal, your Royals and the Giants not so long ago win a bunch of world series by playing kind of like contact hitting speed based station, the station ball, uh, I don't know if that will go out of style. I guess one thing I would say—I mean, I don't know if that will return to style. One thing I would say, though, is as the data landscape flattens, as you're able to get less and less of an advantage from the numbers we have, to me that suggests that uh, sorry, to me that suggests that perhaps these harder to quantify, softer human factors, things like even team chemistry, uh, might become increasingly the way. For teams to differentiate themselves and to gain an advantage.
1: Yeah, having the best manager, having the most likable first baseman, you know, it might be worth sacrificing three home runs to have a player that can keep everyone motivated and happy. I think there's a lot of different ways that it can go, which uh, leads me into our our next topic, a much larger one, and something that you allude to in the intro to the book, which is that really the book is about decision-making, and I think that's the lesson I, I would want most people to take from the book because, in general, I've found that that uh, a lot of people specifically people my age just have a really difficult time thinking in terms of probabilities and that holds them back from making you know good investments of their time good investments of their money uh do you think that that lu now would agree with that and also that like this story has the ability to translate to a more universal lesson to like the modern western person
0: i think it does I certainly think it does and i guess if i had to sum up the astros philosophy in three words it's process over outcome i think a lot of what you're talking about davis has to do with our fear of failure our the outsized weight that we give to potentially negative imagined outcomes even if the probability of those outcomes are very low i think that the astros might serve as a model for enacting a very well-considered, smart process, um, and one that is not outcome-focused, but focused on the day-to-day, and in giving yourself a wider range of probable good outcomes.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't know what it is exactly that causes people to think in such a, a black-and-white way, but anytime a book like yours comes out or or any sort of pop culture phenomenon happens that, that encourages people to think more in ranges of outcomes, I, I really greatly encourage it. I, I don't know if the, if there's something about the modern American psyche that keeps people from thinking that way, but I, do, I think it's like legitimately problematic that people have such a hard time thinking about the different ways that scenarios can go.
0: I don't think it's anything about modern America or anything. I think it's just human nature, kind of uh, human emotion, human imagination. Like we are drawn to thinking about extreme outcomes, right? This is what I start to get into in the book. I'm in the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky about heuristics and cognitive biases and stuff. Like humans are rife with cognitive biases uh, that really allows us in part or, or drives us to focus on the extreme ends of past occurrences and future occurrences, whereas to find success and even happiness, uh, if you can train yourself to think not in that way, I think you'll probably be better off.
1: That, I mean, I guess that that's sort of an interesting point because I guess – the way, even the way that I'm thinking about this is maybe maybe too black and white, where I'm just thinking about the world around me and looking at, you know, the political arena and looking at uh, the way that a lot of, like, fans think about their sports teams. It is it is so black and white, but I guess there probably is evidence that humans have sort of always thought this way.
0: Right. I think I think that it's part of us and part of it that we have to overcome. And, you know, I think that the process-focused way of being has more advantages than just maybe turning out well for you. I think that being able to focus on what you're doing each day and kind of being blind to the future almost, I mean, considering the future, but not constantly obsessing about what your life is going to look like when things are great in three years from now or whatever uh, is very healthy as well. And actually, as I was writing this book, Astro Ball, I, I used those lessons from the Astros. You know, I wasn't thinking about how great it was going to be to hold this beautiful hardcover in my hand and be so proud of it every day i was just focused on the you know 1300 words a day or whatever that i had to write and focus on making those as good as possible and if you do that enough times just like if you're the astros and you make enough good decisions enough times uh, the outcomes will take care of themselves
1: i think that's a that's a really interesting that, that's just like sort of an overall interesting concept of life that the that the steps and the choices of continually making good decisions are probably almost like more important than the result you're focusing on itself, like, like choosing not to order takeout one night. It, it seems like nothing. But if you choose to not order takeout uh, every night for for 10 days, then then all of a sudden you have you have like nine good results.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting the Astros have like figured out the secret to a happy life, because I think certainly right. they have not in a lot of ways. But if you think along those lines, I think that the results uh, will, will probably be more positive than even you can imagine. So now
1: I want to turn the conversation towards football because that's uh, the sport that I'm primarily, that I work in, that a lot of our listeners care about. Not that the listeners to the podcast don't watch baseball and don't care, but football is, you know, the, the ever-present thing that all of these analytic lessons get turned to. And the big problem in football has really always been something that the Astros at least tried to solve with the with the stout model with synthesizing human observations into the probabilistic models because in baseball the st- even basic statistics are pretty good like weighted on base average if you if you looked at no other baseball statistics but that you'd get a pretty good idea of how good or bad a player was same same would go for war and a number like that doesn't really exist for football so baseball is already ahead of football in that uh, in that way. But knowing what you know about pro sports and and your time spent inside the Astros organization, do you think that it would even be possible for a team to really implement the the combination scouting statistical models that the Astros have built for baseball for football? I, I would say the Browns probably tried, but gave up honestly, probably two years too early.
0: I think it would be a lot harder. I mean, there's a reason why baseball is always at the forefront of statistical revolutions and things like that because it's an easier sport to understand. It's based on discrete one-on-one matchups, you know, pitch by pitch. It's easier to analyze and break down and parse and figure out what's going on than the chaos of a football field or a soccer field or a basketball court. But certainly I think the concepts of the Astros have pursued could apply to football i think they should be more widespread already and i think that the browns you mentioned are a great example of how they might work now one of the astros great strengths was their patience and their confidence their patience with and confidence in what they were doing at the end of the day a lot of that came down to the owner jim crane who is a billionaire, right? He's like a pillar of the Houston community, but he believes in this process so much that he risked three, four-plus years of being an absolute embarrassment in that town, almost not being able to show his face in galas, the Astros, in galas or whatever rich people attend, because the Astros were so bad, uh, but he stuck with it. He stuck with Jeff Luno even through the bad years. He stuck with Sig Meidel through the bad years. And I talked to Jim Crane on the field uh, down in Dodger Stadium after Game 7 of the 2017 World Series, and I asked him, you know, what the secret was to all this. And he said, the plan, sticking to the plan, that's what did this, right? And then if we look at the NFL, uh, and the NBA too, really, as far as the 76ers, who also fired Sam Hinkie, the architect of their effort, but yeah, the Browns, for whatever reason, even though it's starting to work now, thanks a lot to the groundwork that guys set a few years ago, uh, didn't seem to have the patience to see this thing all the way through, at least as it was initially conceived.
1: I think, I think that's actually one of the largest thing that goes under discussed when people talk about implementing this in football is it, it might legit take four years to build everything out the way that a department wanted to build it, uh, a scouting department or, or a, a general manager. And, and I don't know if any NFL owner has enough patience to really do that. Like right now, the Miami Dolphins are entering into a rebuild and they're trying to, to embrace analytics a little bit more. And, and there's already some rumblings that the, the owner of the Dolphins is saying, you, you guys have like two years to do this. And, and I don't know. I don't think you can well, do it in two years.
0: I'm not. Maybe you can do it faster in football, though, Davis. First of all, careers are so much shorter, by and large, than baseball. That uh, perhaps you have to. But also in baseball, you know, you're drafting guys like Carlos Correa is drafted in 2012. He's not even playing for your team until 2015, and that was early, right? Like some guys, these guys are down the minors four or five years. So maybe the time frames in baseball are longer. Than they should be in football. As far as specific players, I guess I think as far as the concepts uh, that you're implementing, uh, those should be more long term.
1: I guess that is a good point. Is that roster turnover happens quicker in the NFL? The guaranteed contracts uh, you can honestly, the salary cap is barely real in the NFL, um, yeah. and so I think that impacts it. An- another thing, and I-, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone make this point. But to to really re-innovate the way that football statistics are done, I think you'd have to start from a math background where you're able to isolate the impact of 22 guys on the field at the same time. And I don't know if... like the world's best statisticians or, or mathematicians have any interest in doing that for football, and I don't know if there's enough money that could make them interested in doing it. Like, this might be 15 years away just because the level of math needed might legitimately not be available.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible. And guys in football are all doing such different things on the field and require such different skill sets, whereas baseball, you know, there's a range, but it's still only a few. One thing about baseball, and you're right to mention the economic component about it, is that the type of people, the type of skills and intellects that they're applying to these problems, like these guys could be making literally 100 times more a year if they were on Wall Street or in a tech industry or something like that. Uh, The bonus is that they get to work in baseball, which they all have a passion for. So that's really the decision there. In football, if the gap is even wider uh, if you know the level of intelligence and ability is that much greater, I think it does make it an even harder problem
1: yeah and and i don't i don't know if there is a solution to it, and maybe you can maybe you can do the you know the the browns ball revolution without having that high level of math if you 're just thinking about things more in an analytical sense using more information to make your decisions as opposed to how things are always done. You should write the Browns book next though that that i I would be more fascinated than any other story than if you if you sat down with Sashi and then talked to the guys who are in place now this is this is what the community wants. Uh, everyone who read Astro Ball <laughs> wants you to do they want you to do the browns book.
0: I'd love to I'd love to we we'll we'll, uh, we'll take it under advisement for sure
1: all right uh what is what's next for you? What are you working on now?
0: Uh, I'm back at Sports Illustrated. Um, for people who are interested in this sort of thing, I definitely encourage you to look up this piece I wrote uh, this spring on Trevor Bauer, who is by far the most analytically minded athlete I've ever encountered. He's also the most transparent and open athlete I've ever encountered, often in ways that rub people the wrong way. But, you know, when you're talking about how this stuff has leached into sports at all levels, I mean, Trevor Bauer is doing things that, a lot of teams aren't doing just in his own training yet. He, by the way, says that even though he's a member of the Indians, the Astros are still leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else in Major League Baseball. But I think that people who have gotten this far in the podcast and are interested enough in this stuff would really enjoy exposing themselves to uh, Trevor Bauer's worldview, and you can find that on SI.com.
1: Does he still think that the Astros are cheating?
0: Yes. <laughs> he thinks the Astros... He thinks they're cheating specifically by using pine tar to increase their spin rates on their fastballs and breaking balls, but he thinks that every team in the league is doing it too, so he's not necessarily calling out the Astros. He says he doesn't do it because he has morals, but he's convinced that every team in the league, I think he said about 70% of pitchers are using illegal substances. To him, it's this great kind of scandal on some level that nobody's ever going to do anything about
1: I, don't, I mean, I don't know if Major League Baseball is at all incentivized to do anything about it. It's interesting he still, he still believes that. He, Trevor Bauer, I guess if people don't know, like if they're just listening to this because they read the book, but they don't know a ton about baseball, Trevor Bauer, that was a good recommendation. He's an incredibly interesting dude.
0: Yeah, thanks. And I mean, look, he's gone so far as to get in a uh, pitching cage and with a bunch of different substances, like pine tar and Vaseline and all this and try this stuff out himself using pitch tracking technology that will instantly reveal to him the different ways his pitches move using each of the different substances and his conclusions in his mind are pretty firm that uh, a lot of people around the league are using this stuff.
1: All right, everyone, go read Ben's articles on sportsillustrated.com. I will include a link to Astro Ball in the description of this podcast if you have not read it yet, and make sure to follow Ben on Twitter.
0: Thanks, Davis. It was really fun.